Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on a drizzly spring day here in the capital is Angelina Mafira Karewa. Angelina is the care manager at Mido Care Services, a domiciliary care company based in Hatfield, Hertfordshire. Uh, Angelina, very warm welcome to you today and thank you so much for joining us on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure, Angelina. Um, now, just to begin with, I think we should address the elephant in the room, and that's the fact that we're recording this programme while we're still in the grip of the COVID-19 situation and have been for the best part of 14 months. And being in the care sector as you are, of course, you've been very much on the front line of that. So how has all of this affected you and your operations over this last year? Oh, yes, it was really challenging to start with. And um Yes, we ended up getting a lot of work and losing a lot of carers, which was another another challenging area as well. Uh, because when this came around, um, nobody was expecting it, and we didn't know what the outcome was going to be like. But uh, anyway, having um, learned quite a lot in care on the infection control and things like that, we thought we would be able to manage as much as we can. But mm. as you know, with these barriers, with this, uh, sorry, with this virus, you don't know how it um, mutates and how it spreads so fast. So, yes, so we ended up having a lot of carers going into isolation, uh, having had the advice from the government to say people, we have got um, some conditions, should uh, try and isolate themselves or shield themselves, go into shielding. So some of our carers had to go shielding because they live with their elderly parents and some had to go home and isolate because they put children and they didn't want to pass this to their own children. And it was really scary because carers thought by going into elderly people's homes because they also get visitors, they will catch this virus. And uh, yes, we, we, we did end up having about two or three carers being symptomatic and um, they had to isolate for more than 10 days, which left us with short stuff in the with staff, and uh, we ended up um, doing more hours than we never thought we would be doing. Mm. And at the same time, we had lots of extra work coming through from people being discharged from hospital, and um, most of them had had COVID. So we would ask the hospital whether they should be tested again before they come home to know that they are safe, because we didn't have this um, barrier equipment to use when caring for people like that. Mm. Uh, thanks to PP. Uh, which was um, then donated by, which was then given out the NHS. So we also registered ourselves there to get PPE. Uh, and um, yeah, uh, the carers were coming back to work. We had to give them all the masks, the aprons, gloves to keep with them wherever they are, so that at least whenever they go into a client, they're already masked and gloves and everything to protect themselves. Mm. Yeah, it was quite challenging, yes. I can imagine in those early weeks of the pandemic when, as you say, you're facing a virus you don't know an awful lot about and you also don't have the protective equipment there. 
it must have been so, so scary for you as a leader leading a group of carers into the unknown in a way. How much of a challenge was that? Yes, you, we had to convince them that with PPE on, if you are well protected, you are likely not to get the virus. But then the thing is, you go into someone's house, windows are closed and they're in there and you don't know whether they've got the virus or not. Opening their windows, the, some of them didn't like that. So it was a big challenge to us because we needed air to flow through in and out while the carers are working. Uh, so that was a big challenge. And some carers, because service users would refuse, ended up not wanting to come to work. And uh, up to now, we still have this challenge of uh, getting carers back, to come back into the caring sector because they're still thinking, now there's another variant, uh, another variant coming. Uh, they think, oh, we, we might get it. But another thing as well that he says was the carers themselves, some of them refused to be vaccinated mm. because of all the things that they've heard about the vaccination. We, half of the carers were vaccinated and half the carers were not vaccinated, which was again going to be, which is now another challenge to us to make them understand that with vaccination, even if you get infected, you might not be as ill as when you are not vaccinated. It's a difficult thing, isn't it, combating misinformation that's out there because they've been through so much trauma, carers on the front line, and their mental health has been affected to such a degree, hasn't it? Um, in terms of managing yes. that mental well-being, how difficult has that been? Because I can imagine you've seen an awful amount of trauma over the last 14 months. Oh, yes. I had to give them a lot of support. And I also had to go out and do the care, of which I'm still doing now so that at least they can see that I can also go out and face those challenges. And um, we had to support them every morning with one our carers, check them and find out how are you, how are you feeling, do you have any temperature or anything, if you're okay, come back to work. And uh, we, yeah, we tried to make things a bit easier for them. Even with staff meetings, we ended up doing them on Zoom, so that we see each other, because we didn't have much contact with each other, but just talking on the phone. So, yes, we kept on supporting each other mentally. And it sounds to me as well that what you've done in terms of your approach to this crisis is you've gone out there and you've led by example and really shown them that this is the way that we're going to do this. Yes, correct. Yes, exactly. Because, you know, if I keep away from them, then they'll think I'm protecting myself, but I'm sending out there, sending them out there to get infected. Mm. So I had to set up a round for myself and go out and do it as well. And just thinking about the last sort of 14 months as a whole and reflecting on the whole experience, it's been essentially something unprecedented for all of us. So would you say that you've actually learned something in your role from the experience that you've had? Yes, I, I did. Yes, because um, having done that, I actually noticed that with carers, for them to boost their confidence in situations like that, you have to be out with them to work. So they can also come out and think, okay, our manager is out there working. So who am I to stay away? And they will also join in. And you also make them think positively about this. Because if they are well protected, there is nothing going to happen to you. So we made sure that the gloves and whatever they needed, they, each one of them had them in their car all the time. And before they go into a client, they are protected, masks, apron, gloves, everything on before they enter someone's house. And mm. also we gave them sanitizers. We used a lot of money because we had to buy sanitizers to make sure everyone is well equipped. 
and it's been very well documented just how sort of short-handed the care sector was at the beginning you were left without pp resources you were left not knowing a great deal about the virus itself but as the pandemic has worn on would you say that that situation has got better and that now you have those vital resources that you need do you think yeah, um, I won't say it has gone better because mm. we have lost quite a lot of care staff and we are trying to recruit, but it looks like people are no longer interested in getting into care because of what they've experienced. Mm, so that- it's, really a, it's really a challenge for us, which we are not trying to see if we can get a license and recruit somewhere else, whereas there are people who are not working and who should be actually helping out. So I don't know how that can be addressed for people to be informed and say, you can still go back to work. You can go into care and work. There is nothing there that you must you, you should be afraid of. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because there's been so much goodwill toward frontline workers during this pandemic. Yes. We've seen the clap for carers, for example, for those um, on the front mm. line. Um, but it seems as if because of the whole trauma and the struggles that they face, people are actually hesitant to then go and put themselves on that front line is what you're saying, isn't it? So we could see maybe a skill shortfall in the care sector over the next few months. There is massive skill uh, short. And uh, what is happening now with all these um, pubs and restaurants opening, they are choosing to go and work into the restaurant. Mm, it's incredible, isn't so, it? So, yes, it's like uh, with our company, we've actually lost about three carers. We have gone out and said they, they don't want to come in back to work into care again because of what they have experienced. Because when you go into a client and you see a client dying because of the COVID, mm. it traumatizes you and you think, oh, my God, I, I can't do this. It changes you, an experience like that, doesn't it? It really does. Yes, yes. But uh, the thing is, people have to learn that this is the way things are. And um, we just have to be there and do the job. That's exactly it. And thinking about that, of course, the experience of watching people die, of course, and suffering that trauma, it can break a lot of people, can't it? But in your case, would you say that the experience of the last 14 months has actually made you stronger as a leader in your position? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And uh, it, because I did lead the example, I did go out and do it. I did show my carers how to do it. It is actually enriched my experience. And I feel if ever we are ever to, go to, to come across anything of this, like now we've got this Indian virus, we are well prepared. Mm. And thinking about sort of managing yourself through a crisis on the whole, I mean, every single day is a massive challenge. Of course, it's traumatizing. It's difficult. You're you're seeing um, an awful lot of terrible things. What is it that really drives you and inspires you to sort of keep going during a situation like that? Yeah, because at the end of the day, we know we are all going to die. And uh, if this is the way that you are going to die, then let it be. So you just have to keep telling yourself that I have to do it. But if this is the way I'm going to die, anyway, I'll die doing the job that I love. Yes, exactly. And thinking, yes, um, you carry on. Yes. Um, yeah, and just thinking about the uh, the future as well, because we are now starting to see some signs of green shoots that the pandemic may be coming to an end. Of course, there is that lingering threat of variants still there, as we've touched on already. But are you sort of optimistic that there is going to be sort of a pathway out of this now and we can really start to look to the post-COVID future? 
Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to be as bad as it was because when it started, nobody knew how this is going to end up and nobody knew how we were going to overcome this. But anyway, with all the expertise and all the scientists and all the people putting an effort together, we managed to come out of it. Mm. Not completely, but at least we can see things that ease off and we can go about doing our own thing. So with these variants that are coming, I don't think it's something really to, to, to worry about. We, yes, we do have to worry about them, but we have a way of dealing with them, especially in the care sector. We now know what to do when we have these things coming to us. It's no longer an unknown threat. We're prepared and like say, we know exactly what it is and we know exactly how to work yeah. around it until like say new vaccines are available and then we can start to address the problem a little bit more sort of with vigour, let's say. Yes. And just thinking about what the next year might hold for yourself now in particular and Medo Care as a, a company, because I am conscious that we are running short of time. What are you hoping that the next year holds yourselves now and what are you really hoping to achieve as we move out of lockdown? What we are hoping to achieve is um, if we can manage to get the license that we are in the process of applying and we get more stuff in, I think this industry will be back on its feet again. And I think everybody, when they see other people coming in and working, people will then start coming back into work. And I hope we won't be short of stuff as the way we are now. Hopefully we do start to see some real progress in those areas, Angelina. Um, I have to say thank you ever so much for joining us on the show today because it's been a real eye-opening experience for myself and I'm sure the listeners share that sentiment too. And as we start to actually move out of the lockdown period and we start to see just what sort of shape the world is starting to take, I actually think it would be great to welcome you back onto the show with us at some point and just see how things have changed and how things are getting on then. Okay. Um... Things haven't changed much at the moment, but we are just hoping, we are all hoping, keep fingers crossed, that things will be brighter by next year. We don't know what's going to happen with this other virus. If they start doing the uh, the postcode lockdown, I think it will help combat it. Exactly. We can only keep our fingers crossed and be hopeful and be optimistic, can't we? Angelina, thank yeah. you. Thank you so much again for joining us on the programme. And next up on the show, we're going to be hearing from the chairman here at the Leaders' Council, former Education Secretary and prominent politician, Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help, I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can 
uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. and. In that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery. Whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. 
Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain, and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert, mm. but actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere Uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required Uh, Those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed 
without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self isolation not incarceration it was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well those who went over the top i think soon got a very substantial pushback and one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate people could say i'm terribly sorry we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment that that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks. And uh, 
we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think 
Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why 
the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well Uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. 
We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn Mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank really you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.